rhetorical listeners, and welcome into the newest episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I hope you're doing well right now. Our guest today is Jason Markins from Syracuse University. Jason's so cool. I met him, let's see, 2019. It was just last year in 2018 at Computers and Writing Conference there in uh, George at George Mason University in Fairfax. Uh, he was in a panel that I <clears throat> was on with uh, our WPA and a couple of my peers focused on uh, capturing uptake in the FYC classroom, uh, asked some really smart questions, and we connected. And I think our connections obviously go beyond our interest in, in uptake in the FYC classroom for sure uh, as, um, as graduate students who – perhaps took on this endeavor a, a little later than some in life. We have that connection. That's one, and, and I think there's a, a handful more that I'll let you kind of put together as the interview happens. But before we get to Jason, I want to mention a couple of things to you. First of all, we are have a CFP ourselves out. Now, we're going to call this a call for participants. What we're looking for at the Big Rhetorical Podcast right now are... People who are interested on coming on the podcast with their spouse and talking about their experience working in academia and how that's impacted the relationship and the things that they've made. And really, we want to frame this around labor, though. All right. So we put out the CFP on Twitter. We've already gotten four hits, four hits for this series of mini episodes. Um, So if you're interested Make sure you reach out to us. You can find us online, right? Visit our website, the Big Rhetorical Podcast at .weebly.com. Before we jump into Jason's interview, though, I do want to share with you that the deadline has been extended for a couple of conferences. First things first, the SWCA, Southeast Writers Center, Writing Centers Association Conference, has extended their deadline to November 1st. Now, hey. The podcast was the 29th, I think. So you're on the heels of that of that deadline to turn your your proposal in. But make sure you get that in. Jackie Wells uh, from the University of Alabama Birmingham, Dr. Wells joined us earlier this year and promoted that conference. And then another conference happening next year, right in Milwaukee. Oh, you thought I was going to say C's. I'm actually talking about ATTW, the Association of Teachers of Technical Writing. They have their proposal out, uh, and it's going on right now. I think it's through November 1st as well, so get on it. We'll talk a little bit about the ATTW. Of course, their CFP this year, dealing with language, access, and power. Quote, indeed, language, access, and power at the heart of our ever-expanding, increasingly globalized work, Haas and Ebley, Ebley, uh, 2018, which includes a long list of things that I won't get into now, but I think it's important to read this part. Quote, enacting our roles as agents of accessibility, social justice, and change, Jones, Jones, Walton, and more, technical communicators can leverage languages to build and break access and to foster and disrupt established power structures. And they quote a host of people there, Jones and Williams, Canal Hunt, and Savage, Williams, and Pimentel. So I think that these are some really interesting 
questions to consider that they give us on the prompt. How do you engage the intersections of language access and power in your teaching, research, community engagement, practice, and or program administration? What pedagogical approaches engage the intersections of language access and power, uh, et cetera, et cetera? What program models engage the intersections of language access and power? They even include a part on assessment, of course. That's really a great CFP and such a timely CFP come out as technical communication as a field is post the social justice term. All right. Well, make sure you get your conference proposals into SWCA and to ATTW and we'll see you in Milwaukee in March of 2020. Back to Jason. Jason Markins has recently joined Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, where he will teach for the 2019-20 year as a visiting instructor, he will commute to Hamilton from Syracuse where he's wrapping up his graduate work in composition and cultural rhetoric. His dissertation is titled The Head and the Hand, a Comparative Rhetorical Analysis of Craft and Technology in the Craftsman, 1901 to 1916, and Make, 2005 to 2019. Super interesting project. All right, brief aside. His dissertation chair is Dr. Krista Kennedy. Jason's teaching specialties include composition and rhetoric, writing studies, digital humanities, and critical making. His research interests include looking at traditional craft practices such as woodworking, crocheting, or ceramics, alongside, alongside high-tech innovations such as 3D printing, computer coding, and robotics to see how various craftspersons discuss both how they learned their craft and the unique rhetorical ecology surrounding what it means to be a craftsperson. He does this in an effort to draw from these different communities to better understand what it means to be a, a writer as craftsperson at a time when technology is drastically affecting how our students compose tech. Of course, you might catch Jason out hiking and backpacking in the Adirondacks, baking bread and brewing beer. Oh, brewing beer. That's interesting. Jason. And collecting and tinkering with older or historic pieces of technology. I was excited to do this interview, and you should be excited to hear it. Here's my chat with Jason Martins. What, what part of Indiana are you from? A very rural part of central Indiana, about 20 minutes southeast of Indianapolis, called Fairland, Indiana which is next to Bogstown with where there is no bog and Pleasant View where there is no view. Um, it, it's a very, very small town. Uh, when I was growing up, there was one stoplight and it was a blinker, not a changer is how I would say it. it we, we had one light and it just flashed red the whole time. But now since I've moved away, they've built a uh, horse race track and a casino and a gas station at a McDonald's. Um, I was just there this weekend. My brother uh, got married, so my partner and I had to fly in, visit the family. Uh, and it's really interesting to see how rural Indiana has changed in the last decade. It sounds like quintessential Indiana, from my experience. I mean, it, it's very Parks and Rec. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, is, it, is, is that where Hanover College is? So where Hanover's right on the Ohio River. If, if you think of Indiana as kind of a boot, it's at the bottom of the boot, uh, halfway between Louisville, Kentucky, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, it's about two hours south of where I grew up. Uh, Hanover is a gorgeous area. Um, 
there's there's a lot of hiking trails. The Knobstone Hiking Trail, which Indiana is a very flat state, but the Knobstone Trail is a uh, arduous hike that a lot of people do just for the physical labor of go because you're constantly going up and down. So now they found every hill in Indiana. So that Southern Indiana, I'm very fond of. Ah, oh, you got your BA in English at Hanover College down there. How in the heck did you wind up uh, on the Ohio River to get your BA? <laughs> That's an interesting story. And what's really interesting is, um, coincidentally enough, when I was a kid, uh, I would stay summers with my great aunt. Um, and she had uh, this like little um, lake house on the Ohio River. And I, I didn't realize this until I uh, actually went to Hanover. But the college overlooks where I had played as a kid. And I had all these like fond memories of building tree forts and whatnot, you know. But growing up, so I grew up in a very rural community in central Indiana, um, and I did not go to college until much later. Um, like I, you didn't I, go like when you were 18? Yeah, I was 20. Well, actually, to back up, I was 25 when I went to Hanover, but I was 24 when I, I was driving a forklift um, in a, a place. It, it now has a new name. At the time, it was called CSI. Uh, I won't mention the actual name now, um, but it it was a warehouse that was uh, all of the refrigerated food that went to Kroger stores would go through there. And so we would drive forklifts uh, and load up pallets that would go on to semis. And, and so this was a job where it was often if you're in the like ice cream wing of the warehouse, it was minus 30 degrees. If you were in the warmest parts, um, it was often like 35 degrees. Uh, union job, but not the strongest of unions where you, we often worked six, 12 hour days and then often would have over four overtime. I hated it. And I worked third shift <laughs> for years, uh, made good money as a teenager, which I unfortunately spent on CDs and travel. But, uh, one day so it's a long story, but you have to imagine we're like me and my friends are driving these massive, uh, LTOs, lift trucks that were raising skids of like ice cream and, um, you know, push pops and birthday cakes. And I had been talking for hours about how I hated my job and I wanted to go to college. And the uh, pallet that I was lifting up broke and just rained down. And you have a guard above your head, but I'm on this fork truck. I'm standing up, it, it, lifting a pallet probably about, you know, 200 feet in the air. It, it's really difficult to see. And birthday cake just rains down and covers me. I'm just like a cartoon character covered in ice cream cake. Uh, And everyone's, you know, like driving by and they're kind of making fun of me. And I signed out on my truck, which was essentially quitting. And so then everyone comes over and they're like, what you're doing? And I said, this is it. I'm going to college. And I hopped, I cleaned up the mess, jumped on the fork truck, drove to the front. And then at this point, a couple of my friends are following me like, what are you doing, Markins? you're nuts uh and turned in my stuff and i was like i'm going to college i, I can't do this anymore so it you're did, 20 you were 24 yeah uh but it took me a little while so what i ended up doing is i enrolled for some classes at ivy tech community college in downtown indianapolis and then so i had to pay for all of this uh I took two part-time jobs, one at a Kroger store on one side of Indianapolis, and the other I worked at a factory, um, sanding aluminum parts that went into lawnmowers. 
And then I arranged it to have Tuesdays and Thursdays off. And I went to Ivy Tech for a year uh, before then transferring to Hanover. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I wanted to be an English teacher. I, I had uh, been very involved in coaching um, elementary, middle school, and high school wrestling teams. And my father was a wrestling coach. So I thought, I'll go become an English teacher. I always liked English. Uh, and I'll be a coach. Uh, so I worked at Ivy Tech, met a professor there, a philosophy professor who was like, hold on, you know, like, I want you to think about what you're doing. Why don't you check out this school, Hanover? Um, and maybe consider becoming a college professor. Um, and basically, after hanging out in his office hours a few times, going and visiting Hanover, I was like, this is it. I, I want to be a college professor. Oh. Uh, and so then I went to Hanover. And so then I bought I, every time uh, grad school's rough, I blame Barton Updike, my professor at Ivy Tech, who was like, oh, you should be a college professor. Uh, but I joke because he was he, he had a huge impact on how I got from that forklifting job to th- this kind of like pattern. So so you're 24 and you're covered in birthday cake and you yeah. decide to go to college. But what did you do between 18 and 24? Is, were you just forklift and oh man, Charles, ice cream? <laughs> Drove around the country, worked different jobs, worked so many different jobs. Um, where did you drive to? Where's the, where'd you drive to? The, the most entertaining story was we drove from Indiana to Vancouver, and Vancouver, Canada. This is a long time ago. Uh, this was right around, well, um, you didn't need a, a passport to get into Canada at the time. So I think we drove 40 hours and then just hung out in Vancouver for like a month or two and then drove back. A month or two. That That was my... 19 to 22 ish range and then and then after that i had to come back and then i started driving a forklift for a few years yeah and then you went to hanover college and and then i went to hanover college um really connected with several english professors i was i was a creative writing um undergrad um i wrote a lot of poetry um i really loved it it hanover had a very old school it's all georgian architecture brick um waterfalls kind of overlooking the Ohio River. Um, and it had this kind of, um, it's what I pictured college was at the time, not really knowing much. It, it had that feel. And so I, I really connected to my creative writing professors um, and the, the people who had worked with me. Really, And looking back on it, I mean, I was finding my voice, not really knowing what college was about or what writing was about. Um, yeah. I guess the people at Hanover sent you uh, to West Virginia. Yeah, so I went. I graduated from Hanover in 2009. The numbers on this might be a little fuzzy, and then <laughs> went to West Virginia uh, and was there two years. And really, so I, I would say, other than um, Barton Updike, the professor I met at Ivy Tech, who was a philosophy professor who really influenced kind of my life trajectory, when I went to um, West Virginia, actually, Jay Dalmage was the WPA at the time. Um, and he's had a huge impact on everything that I've done. Just, um, I was I was a lit major. I thought I was going to be a professor of English and write, you know, that whatever the great American novel is. Um, and working with Jay, it, and it really, I mean, I can't, we could sit here for a half an hour, I could tell you all the positive um, things about Jay, but the influence he's had on me. 
Mm. It was his love for teaching first year writing um, that really just stuck with me because I loved it. Once I started teaching writing um, and was actually in the classroom and those first year writing classes and those students who are trying to figure out who they are, those were the connections I was looking for. Um, So, yeah, two years at West Virginia, I I lit um, master's. Knew that so, so, so while I was at West Virginia, they required four specific assignments for every single first year writing course. Um, and I had had this background in like zines. I, I, I just knew about zines, you know, like DIY handmade zines that people would make it for their music shows and would pass out. Uh, zines are often very personal. They often also um, have kind of a political or social justice bent. These four assignments we were required to have at West Virginia included a a multi-genre personal narrative, an interview with someone, a textual analysis, um, and it's been about 10 years since I did this. I forget what the the last one was probably some sort of like, um, I don't even remember. But I saw that these things could fit together and each student could make their own zine. And I knew that my like kind of DIY crafting background would come in handy. And so I brought in scissors and glue and magazines and talked to Jay about like, how should I approach this? And he was just always encouraging, just run with these ideas. And so in my first year writing class, I started doing a lot of stuff with kind of an arts-based pedagogy. Let's cut stuff up. Let's mix stuff up. Uh, let's see what we can do and see how that helps us understand academic writing. And that's pretty much stuck with me to today. I imagine that there are so many things beyond just your DIY attitude that you um, bring into the classroom and that mold your pedagogy pedagogy based on your experiences before you decided to go to college. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, And I think it's my my entire approach to what college is. So and here's another part that and we can get into it. But a lot of what I do has to deal with critical theories of technology. I didn't have a computer until I was, I guess, 24, 25. Once I was full-time at Hanover that fall semester, I bought a desktop computer. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 29. Um, Part of that was just, uh, I don't know what. (laughs) But when the first iPhone came out, I got one because I thought, this seems cool. Uh, But before that, if people wanted to get a hold of me, they had to like, mail me something uh for most of my adult life and i moved out when i was 18 and and, uh looking back on it the idea of not having a phone at the time just seems a little funny i was always kind of scared of technology but willing to kind of jump in and my role uh, the reason i do what i do i think is because i i think it's my responsibility to create an environment where students can learn about these things that they may not have been exposed to, or they may be reticent, or they may be slightly scared, uh, because there is such a risk, especially when working with new digital tools. Um, th- there's the material like financial risk, um, but there's also that not wanting to look like a fool kind of aspect. And I think that comes from who I was at 25 and, and like the stuff that I had done, um, for sure. So you worked and you were uh, language and literature at, mm-hmm. at West Virginia and you kind of fell into loving first year writing and D- DIY. And from there, um, I guess 
you went straight to Syracuse or you had a couple kind of gap years? Kind of. Kind of. Yeah, again, okay. again uh, um, I always like, so to get to Hanover College where I went as an undergrad, there were two ways in. There was the back way. There was like the way everyone used that knew the right. college. And then there was the scenic route, which took you along these waterfalls and was somewhat dangerous because you're over these cliffs. I, I always use the expression for whatever reason, I always get stuck taking the scenic route, um, which is more fun, but also indicates you don't know what you're doing. Uh, <laughs> when So I, I actually, so and cards on the table, you know, it's just you and me. No one can hear this. I applied to Syracuse the first time and was not hired. Mm-hmm. Uh but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I was tired after my master's degree. So I, you, I weren't, just, you weren't hired or you weren't accepted not, to? I, I wasn't hired. I didn't apply to the – I didn't want to do a Ph.D. program. I wanted to uh-huh. teach. So I applied uh-huh. to be a professional writing instructor, uh-huh. a, an adjuncting position that you could do with an M.A. Uh-huh. I was not hired there, but I was hired at a smaller school outside of, school, of Syracuse, um, a very tiny SUNY school. I moved to teach there, and again, um, it did not pay well. I, I worked nights at a grocery store, uh, pretty much right back where I had started. Uh, I would teach. I had an 8 a.m. class and a um, like a noon class, and then I tutored, and that was Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I worked nights at a local Topps grocery store, like Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays. Um, and kind of just took some time to make some money and make ends meet. Then I applied again to be an adjunct to Syracuse a second time, knew a little bit more about teaching and what I was doing and was hired. So then I was an adjunct to Syracuse for two years, I believe, before entering the CCR composition and cultural rhetoric PhD program. Oh, and that gets, us, that gets us to me being a PhD student in CCR uh, with 10 years of teaching experience, you know? Well, I'll be honest. I kind of love that. Um, you know, I, 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 there was a five year, five year gap between my master's uh, degree in literature mm-hmm. and, you know, deciding with my partner to quit my job and go back to school for the PhD. So to hear someone else do it and, yeah. you know, feel confident it really you know uh reassures me you know I'm, and i'm sure it reassures a lot of people that might hear this because i think a lot of people that do that you know there are days where you question that decision yeah i think that our stories are the norm um yeah i agree amazed. there are a number of brilliant people i've met in this field who have geds and i think the typical narrative is not that, <laughs> but um, there are a number of people who did not take that, like, you know, straight on from high school, totally succeeded uh, all the way through the PhD. Um, so, yes, there is some value. It, it, you know, there were some lean financial years in there, <laughs> but I, I do think they're a benefit when I go into the classroom today. Excellent. And so um, where do you go into the classroom today? Well, quite literally now, I just took a one-year visiting instructor position at Colgate University, which is a um, small little private liberal arts college about an hour outside of Syracuse. So I'm living in Syracuse, working on the dissertation basically three days a week, and then commuting to Colgate to teach two days a week. Um, And I'm three weeks in, and so far, so good. Um, Colgate is a a great college. Uh, My students are wonderful. 
Well, so, I want to get into Colgate and the dissertation. So let's start with Colgate a little bit. Um, the commute. Are you taking the scenic route when you uh, head to <laughs> head to Colgate? Yes, uh, I, I am quite a bit. It, um, you and I were talking a little bit earlier. Uh, the, the the commute right now is nice. It, it's very scenic. You know, the, um, the corn is up. There are deer. There are um, hawks that I see as I'm driving. Uh, in a few months, it's going to get quite snowy, so I may regret some of the um, the commute then. But right now, it's been really good. It, it's really relaxing. It, it's one of those activities, kind of like I think, uh, like mowing the lawn or doing the dishes, where um, you, you can kind of take a moment and just kind of like be present in the moment, breathe, relax. So far, it's been helpful. Yeah, I, I imagine so. And what are you teaching at Colgate? First year writing courses? Yeah. So they're so right now they have me doing two first year writing courses. It's a two three um, and and uh, quite useful to me. Like I, I have the same prep. So I'm teaching two of their writing 103 courses. It's not required. Colgate has around 3,000 students. Mm-hmm. Um, they're First year writing courses fill very quickly. A lot of students are told like this is something worth taking. And I had quite a few students uh, looking to get into my classes. Um, it's quite interesting. It, it's a slightly, it's smaller. The classes are capped at 15 or most places I've been have been capped around 20, 22. Um, the students are quite interested. They want to learn, uh, which they do at Syracuse too. But there's always... Um, maybe for me, a little bit of fear going to kind of the private liberal arts college that can be predominantly wealthy white students. And that is not the, that is not what I'm finding. That's what everyone warned me would happen. My classes are very diverse, uh, both racially and I can tell just um, by financially. I, I brought up in class just kind of that my own experiences and how when I go home, um, there can be something of, you know, uh, disconnect between what it means to be a college student and w- my friends that I knew that were working. And I could see quite a few people already uh, really connecting to that and really latching on to kind of thinking about what it means to be working class surrounded by students who tend not to be. So again, I think I'm bringing some of my own experiences and trying to find those students that I can work with. That have probably for 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 freshmen in, in first year comp, regardless of the institution, you know that's probably a really great way to kind of deconstruct that you know mythos of the professor. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. So I find uh, you 15. Wow, as a cap, uh, yeah, extremely appealing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I um, but I, what what I really connected to was uh, I also went. Uh, my undergrad was at like a university in rural Alabama, liberal arts university with like 3000 people. And so it sounds like that might be a very similar um, thing that you're fine, similar university in terms of demographic that you're finding at Colgate and the university that I attended, the university of Montebello, I also think had this same reputation that you talked about. And that was not my experience at all either. So I really appreciate like you bringing that up and kind of breaking that down a bit. Yeah, um, it, I, I do think writing classes are getting a reputation as a place where students can go to um, fit in or to get their voices heard if they're coming from various marginalized backgrounds. And I, I, I mean, that's the teaching that I want. Those are the experiences mm-hmm. that I want. Those are the people that I want to be able to help. 
Um, because like I said, uh, so much of what my experience was, was just being totally clueless uh, at 25 and not really having any friends or family who had gone to college, um, just really not I, knowing how to navigate it. I feel like compelled to say that at 25, I had a, did I have a, I think I graduated my master's degree like when I was 25. Mm-hmm. And I can confirm that I didn't have a clue what I was doing yeah. <laughs> either. And it was because I had no idea how to navigate academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't, I don't, I don't consider myself a first generation college student because I'm not. Um, but it skipped a generation. Like my dad's parents went to college, but no one on my mom's mm-hmm. side had. And, um, you know, my dad didn't. So I don't want to talk too much about me, but that really resonated with me. Like when you talk about how to navigate that and being, a, I felt clueless. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, no. And talk as much as you want, Charles. It's your podcast. Oh, uh, it's <laughs> my podcast. from you too. Uh, <laughs> I, th- there's so many, I felt so awkward. And, and in fact, we can jump around a little bit, but I'll give you two stories. One. Okay. I mean, I was a... I, I was a skinny, chain-smoking 25-year-old who drank a lot of coffee and had worked a hard labor job for the last, like, four or five years. Yeah. Uh, I went to a college that did not have many, if none. So, you know, we kind of, like, found each other and gravitated towards each other. And I had two or three friends who were also non-traditional students who had similar backgrounds. Uh, one of my friends was the first person at Hanover to ever use the GI Bill. And this was in, like, 2004. Um no one really smoked. Everyone seemed quite wealthy. <laughs> and I went all in. I lived in the dorms for two years. Uh, you had to actually. I actually, um, I went, I remember like day two, I'm going to an ice cream social and I'm dragging my other two friends who are older, like chain smoking, like think they're too good for this. And was just like, no, we, we will be ostracized. We either go all in or it doesn't work. What, uh, what brand are you smoking? Oh, I haven't I haven't smoked in years. But at the time, at the time, it was uh, Marlboro Lights, which also marked me as uh, white working class. Um, First generation college. Student. Oh, yeah, because because college <laughs> students uh, smoked like parliaments and like right. rolled their own cigarettes and, and definitely yeah. or smoked Camel Lights. You definitely didn't smoke Marlboro Lights. That, that was a like major social faux pas (laughs) absolutely same same where i was at and i had my pack of marble lights as well (laughs) yeah and i mean i was nervous so it just made it happen more i'm like chain smoking walking around like this cloud and and like clearly someone different Uh, but you know i i think these experiences are felt in different ways and at the end of the day i was a white straight cis you know like able-bodied male Mm -hmm. um if I can take those experiences of feeling kind of uncomfortable and anxious into the classroom, like they're worth it. Like th- that is what I'm looking to do. The, the other story I'll mention, and this jumps to when I had to apply to Colgate. Um, I, I mean, I was really nervous because I ha- had only ever really worn a suit to, you know, like a couple weddings and a couple funerals. So I practiced wearing dress clothes and ultimately I didn't dress up. I didn't wear a full suit. I wore just kind of like um, a suit jacket blazer, but I walked around Syracuse wearing a suit uh, and like I, my in 
internal monologue was just like, everyone knows I don't belong here. <laughs> they can tell. These undergrads, they can see it. And I went right back to that Hanover. Like, uh, there, there was just something like, everyone knows I'm a fraud. But obviously, so, I mean, that's not the case. And I knew, I knew I would feel that way. So that's why I forced myself to kind of dress up and actually walk to campus and, like, buy food and eat something wearing a suit. Because it's so out of my element. And this is recent then. This is recent. This is last year. Yeah. Or last fall. Uh, Very much just still felt, um, you know, like I didn't belong here. Yeah. And like no undergrad. One, you know, um, any undergrad that saw me just thought, oh, there's some old guy who like is wearing a suit. He's probably some admin who's been working here for 30 years or something. <laughs> I, f- I feel that so much. And I f- and, and uh, yours sounds like an isolated event, but mine's every single day when I put clothes on to go <laughs> teach in the classroom. Um, so uh, that that's interesting and funny. Um, well, I appreciate you sharing all those stories with us, by the way. Uh, it sounds like we have a lot more to dive into um, and we might start with your dissertation, which has a fascinating title. I'm going to say it. It is The Head and the Hand, a Comparative Rhetorical Analysis of Craft and Technology in the Craftsman and Make magazine. Uh, I left the years off there. The Craftsman, 1901 to 1916, and Make magazine, 2005 to 2019. Which that's the big uh, breaking news there is that Make Magazine just shut down a oh. couple months ago. So the, oh, ha- they claim they're still going to produce magazines, but I'll, but I think they're done. I'll back, which is convenient for me because it gives me uh, comparable case studies. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the head in the hand was a common phrase that was used in the like 19th and 18th and 19th British and U S arts and crafts movement. Um, And here, when I we're talking about William Morris, John Ruskin, and a a specific like philosophical movement about what it means to make stuff. The head in the hand was a phrase about um, basically embodied knowledge is what we would use today, but it's used in different ways to talk about the actual labor of how things were manufactured in terms of a designer who would be the head and the hand, which would be the skilled craftspeople who are often implementing the design. But in the, in the individual, you have the head, the like planning, thinking, and the hand, which is the, the knowledge of how to work with materials. Um, these are the arts and crafts movement is huge and was global. And also I'm talking capital A, capital C, like a a particular movement that existed in um, Britain, the U.S., and Japan primarily. Mm. I compare these two magazines that were kind of um, flagship magazines for both movements. In the U.S., it it was published in Syracuse, which is how I came across it. The Craftsman Magazine, which was um, published by a man, Gustav Stickley, Um, he was a local furniture maker. Um, you can still buy stickly furniture today. Um, it has that kind of iconic um, mortise and tenon joint, if you know anything about furniture, that uh, the chairs that they would make. Uh, and then it was written by um, a professor, Irene Sargent, who was a um, kind of a foundational figure in the arts and crafts philosophy in the US. So this magazine um, ran for 16 years, was very popular for about the first 10. 
Uh, and it was a socialist magazine about labor politics. Um, it, it was about what it meant to be a worker at a time when industrialization was coming along. The second magazine, Make Magazine, is um, a part of that. If listeners are familiar with that, like capital M maker movement that uh-huh. has that, you know, iconic red and blue kind of uh, logo. Uh, Make Magazine was their flagship publication, and then they created the Maker Fairs, um, some of these events that have been happening um, that has also taken off around the globe. Make Magazine, in a lot of ways, is a response to increases in automation and um, changes that are happening with our own digital technologies today. I am interested in how these kind of, you know, what we would call discourse communities talk about what it means to make stuff with tools and technologies. Because I'm interested in what it means to be a writer in our, or a writer in our present moment when tools and technologies are changing how we communicate. Does that make sense? It does. I think the connections to first year writing all, I mean, all writing, but first year writing, obviously, I think the connections are, are, apparent and clear when you think about the different tools and then the also like specifically from like a socio-cultural perspective as well absolutely and you know a district as my committee reminds me often a dissertation who is your committee who is your committee and uh krista kennedy is the chair and a lot of this if you know krista's book textual curations looks at wikipedia and the um encyclopedia from i believe the 17th century i'm forgetting she does a comparative analysis of wikipedia and um as a co-authored text and this uh chambers encyclopedia there was a co-authored text several hundred years ago that's fascinating if if jay's like the big influence on my approach to teaching krista is the like big influence on my approach to research um i took a this stems from i took a class with her there was a day writing um, and we looked at histories of techne and craft and like all of this kind of emerges out of that class and thinking about what, what it means to look at specific examples of craftspeople and how they talk about their relationship with tools and technologies. And then beyond that, you, I mean, the social cultural, there's room for six or seven books here. Uh, both the arts and crafts movement and the maker movement um, have issues with presenting uh, like kind of that I, I would say that ron swanson like white male kind of crafts man uh-huh. uh, that just isn't true <laughs> right uh-huh. uh, the history of craft is a history primarily of women's work uh-huh. uh, you know throughout all of human history right uh, and th- there's just quite a lot Gustav, which I think most people pronounce in Gustav, and I did too until I met Gustav Stickley III, and he introduced himself as Gustav, and then I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Gustav, and helpful. <laughs> and, and very helpful. Gustav was an immigrant, started, he, he really didn't speak or write in English, or well, he wasn't, he was the son of um, immigrants, um, at a time when Syracuse had a, a huge influx of um, Eastern European immigrants. He created a uh, magazine uh, with the help of Irene Sargent, who was a professor at Syracuse, who was tutoring him in English and French and uh, showing him Emerson and showing him this John Ruskin. And and he became kind of very interested in this kind of philosophy of what it means to make stuff in ways that are just very 
interesting, I think, particularly for our current moment, and especially how we think about um, how socialism gets talked about in the U.S. There are this, there is this history, particularly with the arts and crafts movement, of kind of a socialist bent that I think gets excluded from a lot of narratives. There's quite a lot there. The dissertation itself is just looking at how these kind of discourse communities talk about what it means to be a person who engages with materials and with tools and technologies. And you're working with uh, Krista Kennedy and Colin Brook and Lois Agnew, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, yes. Fascinating. And you're anticipating graduation soon. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> Some stuff has to come together. But I will, will be on the market. The Colgate position is a one-year position. I'm replacing Meg Worley, who oh. is a professor there, who she does a lot of really interesting. It, it's very fortunate for me that a school an hour away was looking for someone who could replace someone who approaches tools and technologies in the classroom. Meg brings in typewriters. She brings in um, Play-Doh and has students talk about, you know, cuneiform tablets. She brings in like old books and has students go into archives. That's all stuff I've been doing for years. So I'm able to kind of fit in there for the year while she's gone and take over some of her classes. But it it was created as just a one-year thing. So as we speak, I'm also on the job market, dissertating and teaching at Colgate. Well, I won't bog you down with a bunch of job market chatter but i wish you (laughs) do wish you (laughs) do wish you wish you luck there um i know you've got a couple of publications and you took also took part in the digital rhetoric collaborative blog carnival um earlier this year um but you had a piece published with uh jordan canzanetta uh and chad's is is say chad cedar cedar Um, that went into the Rutledge Companion to Digital Writing and Rhetoric uh, just last year. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about that project, what it went into, uh, the collaboration aspect, et cetera? Yeah, actually, it's fascinating because that project actually came out of a, an authorship class that the three of us took together uh-huh. many years ago. Isn't uh, it great how those things happen? It, it was a class, and we... As a class, we came together and said it, it was Rebecca Moore Howard who was teaching it. It was a class on authorship. And she said, you know, you're free to do whatever you want here. What do you want to do? And we said, and if, I remember Chad was like, let's create a publication. Let's do something. Let's make something, you know, happen. And we did the class and like a year or two went by. We we, we didn't think we actually had something. We had separate papers. We um Jordan's work and uh, looks at Turnitin, um, and, and she looks at some of these um, large systems of algorithms that kind of observe student writing. Chad has a long history of working with different communities and working with prison literacy organizations and doing some performative stuff, and like working with communities to build some community service type writing, learning service programs. And I was just starting to kind of look at this like maker movement and what was going and, and learning about 3D printing. And our, our project seemed very dissimilar, but we all kind of approached what does it mean to be an author in this class? We kind of sat on these papers. We had kind of talked about, eh, can we do something with this? But nothing really came out of it. And then we actually put it together for a computers and writing paper um, presented on it at computers and writing. In doing so, we, we kind of had to work through our um, connections between our different projects. 
And, and so we had spent some time, put together this computers and writing panel, presented. And then out of nowhere, like a year after that, um, you know, Jackie Rhodes and Jonathan Alexander send us an email out of the blue. Hey, we um, went through some old computers and writing stuff and we found we think your approach to authorship in this panel is what we're looking for. And so, you know, uh, one, our minds are blown that, you know, yeah, these two amazing right <laughs> are even taking the time to email us. And two, I, I think, I, you know, we hear those narratives of how you have to trust the process. And, you know, if you do the work, things will come together. And sometimes those are just those bootstrap narratives. But this was a time where that did happen. <laughs> I mean, from the very beginning, we were like, oh, we're going to do something with this. And it never really felt like it was going to become something. But we did keep returning to it. We did, you know, go out and do a conference presentation on it. And then so then uh, like we really the three of us collaborated, think mostly just in Google Docs and met and had several conversations. And I remember some of those conversations because you have three people with three slightly different projects. I, I remember we really got into some like I wouldn't say arguments because we are friends, but we did we did kind of that thing changed quite a bit. And, and we had to kind of like work with each other and collaborate and give and take and like add some stuff to it. But it, it was a really good collaborative experience. And all of the thanks in the world to both Jonathan and Jackie, who are amazing people. And yeah. they they were looking to include grad students. And, and they mm-hmm. went to the conferences and looked at places where they thought they could find people doing the work they wanted. And lucky for us, we fit right in there. Be, and that's an amazing book. I don't know if you've looked through it. it I haven't, but I wrote down the title while you're talking. <laughs> uh, it's an expensive book. Thanks to Relage. No shade thrown there. It's just me and you, right, Charles? But right. it's worth it. It is an amazing text. Uh, there's some really brilliant stuff in there. So it's an honor to be surrounded by those other people, too. Well, we've been jumping around a bit. So I want to jump around one more time. I want to go back to a, was it? ice cream or birthday cake Mm. covered Jason Markins. And at that moment, when you decided that's it, I'm going to college, you had a, uh, you had a specific idea that was kind of built over time, right? Whether Mm -hmm. it was your time at the community coffee as Ivy tech or Hanover, West Virginia, now it's Syracuse and Colgate. So I wonder after all these experiences and this, what must've been a, pretty drastic change you know at 24 what are you going to do with all of it what's the plan right now going forward and not necessarily i mean on the job market but like what are you going to do with it yeah and that's it's hard when you're in the middle of the job market to some degree it feels like the job you're going to get is going to kind of determine who you are so i think i think that's a really good question especially the way you framed it because what do i want to hold on what values do i have Right. That I want to go forward. That's kind of a hard question. But I I mean, when it gets down to it, I think my approach is what do I owe my students? What can I do for them? They've come to that space. What do I need to do to get them to where they're going? Because my life has been shaped by office hours and the R1 college scene. And, and I've been at a couple now. So I know it's not just Syracuse, but office hours can be something where faculty and grad students are very overworked and they want you to come in with questions to help you if you can. But they're often not places where you come to hang out. 
and at Hanover and at Ivy Tech, I mean, I, I went to Barton Updike's office and just would sit down on my lunch break between classes. Lunch break. That, the, the, even that's kind of me being kind of a working class person <laughs> at the time. But, yeah. but I would set up my day and I would set up a lunch break to go sit in his office and we would have coffee and he would talk to me. And now he, he was older and had gone to Yale in the 1940s. And, and, but that's what I thought college was at the time, you know. And he would tell me these stories. And then I went to Hanover and I connected with the creative writing faculty and a few others that were really just influential in my life. And I went to their office hours sometimes and just hung out. So what do I want to do going forward? I, I do think I have a project, you know, that, I, you know, I, I want to publish. I, I have some things here. There's some stuff I've worked on. But what I want to do is be in a, a situation for me where I'm at least guiding people, helping them to flourish, pointing the way, say, like um, saying, you know, here are some options. I, I do think and I, I would like to teach grad students. I think part of that's just having been a grad student for so long now. You spend a lot of time thinking about what it means to be a mentor. And, and I've had some really great mentors who, who've done a lot to really help me in different ways. So it, it is kind of, and not to be too cheesy, but like, how can I pay this forward? That moment, I don't think about that uh, birthday cake moment all that often, except for when I go home and see some of my old friends and they're reliving that moment because that was fairly epic in our lives yeah. that somebody was going to get out here and try and do something. And now they, they all, all, when I go back, those friends think that I've been making like $70,000 a year for the past 10 years, right? Like I, and you know, uh, at first I used to really, get bothered by it but now it's like whatever <laughs> sure i'm a professor you know uh, it makes me feel good that we, i i might get there too because i just want to be like no it's it's seven it's it's seventy thousand dollars the other way I'm yeah like, yeah yeah <laughs> oh by the way you know like well yeah like i'm meanwhile taking their crackers out of their cabinets or something like yeah, i'm gonna save yeah. these for it, it isn't necessarily what i was picturing but but I do live for it, and I do personally like those moments where I can be someone that's on that path that says, here's some options. Mm-hmm. Um, here's some ways of doing it. Here's how it worked for me. Here's what you can do. Here's some resources. And I think that's why I still, uh, next semester, I'm going to get to teach three upper-level classes, and I'm really excited about that. And I have taught some electives, and I, I've been fortunate at Syracuse Alleged gives you a lot of good teaching opportunities. I, I taught a DIY writing course where we did 3D printing and we did we um, did book binding. We sewed, uh, you know, I brought in needle and some thread and I love those moments. But I also I, I think I will always want to be someone who's kind of around first year writing and around those students who, who are still kind of figuring out what it is. And I hope that to be someone that can do that with grad students, too, that can be like, this is what this is and these are what your options are. I don't know. I love I love that. I love that. Living for those moments like uh, I think that also too just to kind of bring it back full circle is a very working class attitude to right to watch those people that are in your community succeed and share in that sharing that happiness and and things like that. That that's why I feel, that that that's why I feel like I I do first year writing too or the way that I approach writing is is to see those moments, right? They can be extremely, extremely gratifying for me. Yeah. Jason, what else do you want to talk about before I get you off here to go, I guess, enjoy the scenic route to Colgate <laughs> this afternoon? Um, I want to hear about ISU. I, uh, we haven't <laughs> talked much about it. I should have been. Oh, in. yeah. 
this is a true story. Not now. This feels like I'm name dropping, trying to be cool. But at Computers and Writing, I got to work with Jody Shipka oh, on the yeah. Objects Workshop. And and the way that I met you and found out about what you all are doing at ISU is uh, Jody said, "Oh, um, you got to check out this Joyce Walker. Everything she does is amazing." And so then I ran in, like she had to do something else. I, I was just talking to her, and I should back up too. The reason Jody included me in that is I had signed up to do some sort of SWR thing with her, and it was uh, like the season Portland where everyone got snowed out. Uh huh. I think it, it was canceled, and she couldn't do it. And she and she technically had said she was going to do this thing with me, so she went out of her way like a year later to say, "Hey." Uh, I owe you one, which she didn't owe me anything. <laughs> yeah. <all>. And <laughs> right. she included me in that kind of um, evocative objects workshop, which was just amazing. So like huge props to her. She, she like we were wrapping that up and she's like, oh, you got to check out like if you like this stuff, you got to check out Joyce Walker. So like I ran in there just be like, I don't know what's happening. But like if Jody Shipka says I need to know it, I need to know it. And then I went to a panel and I um, you were on it. And some other grad students. I don't know if you uh-huh. or who the panel that I was talking about. Yeah, um, David Giovanoli and Courtney Cox. Uh, yeah, and uh, we were we're all actually still here at ISU. But you all were talking about different ways of kind of big picture. My memory is like first year writing, different approaches to think about like social and technological mediation and like tools and technologies and mm-hmm. like assessment and, and things that just it was different approaches that. I was just loving it. it. It was great. And so well, you all have been on my radar ever since that panel. Well, uh, that makes me feel good. Uh, that makes me feel good. Uh, I've got like four bullet points just from what you were saying. First bullet point is uh, Joyce Walker is amazing. And I'm not just, you know, brown nosing there. Uh, what she's created at Illinois State with a sociocultural approach, a cultural historical activity theory approach. It's it's um. It's super interesting, and and I don't I am new to the field of writing studies mm-hmm. in terms of the scholars. Like I just finished my second year as a PhD student, but I just also started my eighth year, ninth year. I'm sorry, in the classroom yeah. because I had a, a job before I came here. And in terms of making the connections across the curriculum, which is not exactly what the intentions of sociocultural approaches uh, necessarily but I think that it does that so well in the way that my pedagogy works it may not work for everyone but it is super innovative and you're right and it, uh, check it out it is cool we and that panel I thank you for the props on that panel I will admit I was terrified. It was the first like panel at like a national conference I had ever done. And we were trying to establish ways, multimodal ways to provide feedback or to, to students or to assess students. And I think genres is what we were calling it, like a genre studies approach, surely. And I remember I talked about podcasting i believe <laughs> and, and and like the value of 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 providing sonic feedback as a multimodal genre that was a a very good experience for me not only working with those smart grad students and and joyce but also i met you through that panel and sveta through that panel 
And there were only like four people in the room. I think there were a few more, but sometimes it can feel like there are only four. Yeah, for sure. But, but yeah, yeah, we're doing some cool things here um, for sure at, L- at, at ISU. Yeah. Since then, I've had my eye on anything I can see about because I do think there is there are different approaches to talking about technology and there are different digital rhetoric approaches to talking about technology. Yes. And for me, at the end of the day, it's not about the product at all. It, it, it's about like better ways of understanding what it means to be a human in our given moment including all of the intersectional power relationships that we have and how technology mediates that. It's another way into these like rhetorical conversations Uh, and everything that I see that's coming. And I don't, my sense is Joyce is a big part of that, but also you have some superstars out there as well that I think are really just building a program that wherever I go, I'm going to steal ideas from you all and take them. So you should feel good about what you're doing. Well, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna put myself out there, you know, a little bit. I don't know why, but I I think it's just because I felt a connection to you, Jason, for so long. But I'm putting myself out there a bit more than I usually do for the podcast and my listeners and things like that. I guess what I want to say is that I really appreciate hearing that because when I went through the process of graduate school uh, and, and the application process, I should say, right, uh, Illinois State was not necessarily at the top of my list. And I think it's because of the model, that it's not a specialty program, and that it's an English studies model. And I had a couple of offers, and when I came here, it was just like, oh my gosh, it just clicked. It was, it just was, it just became the place that I knew I was supposed to be. And uh, I'm sure that I know the same thing happened with you at Syracuse. But I will say this, and this is the part where I'm putting myself out there. Syracuse was the number one place I wanted to go. And of course, I didn't get in. So <laughs> it feels good to hear somebody at Syracuse say things are good things happening at ISU. For sure. And I, yes. Apply. We could go on and on. Um, on and on. Applying <laughs> funny thing, and it's something. And applying to the job market is a funny thing, especially because we are such a small field. It's weird, one, not to kind of have grudges uh, about places. Oh yeah. Or people when like the you you may have a grudge against a school for something that happened 15 years ago, and like it may be a totally different program, <laughs> but that Absolutely. location, because so much is tied into like our futures are on the line, quite literally. It, it's not always the, that dramatic, but it feels that way. And, and it is a little bit, you know, to where th- those things can stick with you, I guess. <laughs> but so you can let go a little bit because I think you definitely I'll are start. the place that was the best fit for you. And if you were at Syracuse, you would be dealing with 150 inches of snow every winter that, it's I hear just, you. I'll start wearing my Syracuse orange uh, T-shirt <laughs> during March. During March uh, again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Jason, it, I um I want to thank you again for joining me today and chatting, and uh, just want to give you the opportunity. Anything else you want to mention before I let you go? Go here. Nope. I'm glad doing this. Um, it's an honor to be invited. Uh, I was a little nervous, you know, being on the job market talking about myself, but I do think this was very useful just for me to kind of think through some of those narratives. And before doing this the past couple of days, actually on my commute to Colgate, I've been mm-hmm. listening to some of your past episodes and there's some good stuff there. Um, so keep doing it. Oh, thank you, Jason. Good. I'm so glad.
Good, good. Well, I will sign off here and talk to you later. All right. Good talking to you. Bye. All right, rhetorical listeners. That was my conversation with Jason Markins. I want to thank Jason for joining me on the podcast. It's one smart fella. One smart fella. It's going to be exciting to keep up with him and see the things that he does as he continues on his journey as an academic. I want to mention a couple of things. Uh, first thing is that we are looking for participants for a series that we want to do of many episodes devoted to academics and their spouses. Uh, you'll come on together and we're going to frame that around academic labor. Uh, we've got a couple of participants so far, actually four, but uh, we do want to mention that again and let you know that that's going on in case you're interested. You can find uh, information on Twitter and you can visit our website and fill out a contact form and uh, we hope to hear from you on that. Don't forget that we are going to... Don't forget that we are selling merch and you can purchase that online. Uh, you can find the link at our website. It's just a cafe press store. The, the Big Rhetorical Podcast weebly.com Christmas is coming up. These uh, shirts will make excellent stocking stuffers. You might get your dog a toy or a t-shirt for himself. They have all kinds of stuff, so go crazy. Of course, we're selling that merch to raise some funds so that we can hit the road next year. We're going to be at C's. We're going to be at computers and writing, but we want to go elsewhere, and we need some funding to do so. I think that's about it for me. I'm going to go check on the dogs. I think I'm going to put on some soup and uh, enjoy a nice evening at home with my wife. All right. Until next time, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.